Hey there, welcome to the fourth episode of Under Our Feet. Before we get started, a quick reminder to leave a rating or review if you feel inspired. It helps other people find the show. Also, check out uofpod.org. There you can find my contact info if you want to get in touch with any questions, ideas, or to let me know about anything I got wrong. I really appreciate hearing from you. Also at uofpod.org, there's a link to my page on Patreon. There you can make a contribution that helps me make the show, starting at a dollar a month. We have cool benefits available to supporters, like shoutouts on the show, bumper stickers and t-shirts, even an opportunity to choose a topic and be interviewed for a mini-podcast that I'll release after this first season. Consider becoming a patron. It pays for things like the rights to the music that you hear, microphones and other audio gear, the online services that host these episodes. I couldn't do it without you. And thanks to Under Our Feet's latest supporters, Tofu, which I think must be a pseudonym, Nate Beckley, and also my little sister, Sullivan Molinick. In a previous episode, I said that if I couldn't get my mom to support the show, I was in bad shape. I think that flips around for little sisters. So if even my little sister likes the show, then I must be doing well. Thanks, Tofu, Nate, and Sullivan. And as an extra enticement for supporting the show on Patreon, as I record this, I'm up near Houghton and Calumet in the Keweenaw Peninsula. That's the upper peninsula of Michigan's upper peninsula. I spent this afternoon out on a Lake Superior beach collecting little rocks that washed up on the shore. For the next 10-ish people that join our community on Patreon, I'll send you one of my favorites. Join at any level for this little extra gift. Again, that link is at uofpod.org to support the show. Alright, now that we're through all that housekeeping, let's get on to this week's story. It's going to be a bit of a change from the first three. In those first episodes, we were talking about grand tectonic events, where plates of the Earth's crust were crashing into each other or breaking in half. These events built mountains and spawned volcanoes. They produced vast tonnages of copper and iron ore that humans spent thousands of years extracting. The last of these big events was the Mid-Continent Rift, which took place about 1.1 billion years ago. That's 1100 million years. Now we're fast forwarding more than half a billion years and pausing for our next stop in what geologists call the Paleozoic Era. Paleozoic means ancient life, because that's one of the main things that distinguishes this time period from those that came before. The Paleozoic begins after the Cambrian Explosion, which was a major turning point in Earth history. About 542 million years ago, there was a sudden, well, I guess it's sudden in geologic terms, which actually means really, really slowly, but a sudden explosion or expansion of multicellular and skeletal life. For the first time, little critters were swimming around in the oceans, but there was nothing of note on land yet, and the world was irrevocably changed. Wisconsin was also in the midst of a new mode of being. By the Cambrian time period at the beginning of the Paleozoic era, Wisconsin was solidly in the middle of the continent. There was no more risk of collision or rifting, so the area was enjoying a long retirement from all that movement. It's what geologists call a tectonically quiescent period. Today, we're gonna learn all about what happened during the Paleozoic. And while there's not the inherent drama of the pre-Cambrian stories, this time period is still very much a part of our lives. 
So let's find out what happened, what got left behind, and what still matters about Wisconsin's age of ancient life. Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into the earth and deep into time to seek out the geologic events and forces that shape the world around us. I'm Rudy Molinick, and this is Season 1, The Geology of Wisconsin. Let's start by recapping how we got here. The first three episodes of Under Our Feet took place in the Precambrian. That's the whole first four billion year part of Earth history that took place before the Cambrian explosion I just mentioned. In the Precambrian, life is generally limited to bacteria, single-celled, and a few multi-celled organisms. In Wisconsin, we have three big events, and those were the subjects of the first three episodes I just talked about. But I'll do a real quick summary. If you haven't listened to those yet, though, they're, they're worth it. The first big event is the Pinocchian Orogeny. That was a big mountain-building event at about 1.8 billion years ago. Two small continents collided, squeezing an oceanic island arc like Indonesia in between them. During this time, oxygen and shallow ocean basins between the closing continents caused huge amounts of iron to rust out and be deposited as a rock called banded iron formation. Today, we can still see the roots of these ancient mountains in the Pinocchi Hills or the Gogebic Range in northern Wisconsin. We also mined a lot of iron ore from those banded iron formations. The second of these big events in Wisconsin's Precambrian was the Baraboo Interval. This took place between about 1.6 and 1.4 billion years ago. First, sandy beaches led to the preservation of beautiful sandstones with ripples and dunes buried and cemented into place. These rocks were metamorphosed and turned into quartzite, a rock made up of pure quartz. Then another continental collision caused another mountain-building event. Today, the Baraboo Hills, made up of the unique purple Baraboo quartzite rock, are the roots of those mountains. The rest have eroded away, but the bits we're left with form one of the most scenic and beloved landscapes in Wisconsin, Devil's Lake State Park. The third big Wisconsin Precambrian event is the Mid-Continent Rift, which is what I'm sitting up on right now in, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. About 1.1 billion years ago, superheated mantle below the crust of what is now North America caused the continent to start to split apart, centered right on Lake Superior. Volcanoes filled this rift valley, leaving behind rocks that look like they should be in Hawaii or Iceland, but instead, they're here on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border. Then, another continent slammed into North America's east coast and stopped the rift before Duluth could become a seaside resort town. From these rocks, we mined copper. It was the first big mineral rush in the United States, and it powered the economy of the Northwoods for generations. Now, with all that in place forming the core of Wisconsin, we come to the Paleozoic. This is a period in geologic time that lasted from 542 to about 250 million years ago. Most of the rocks we have here from the Paleozoic are from that first half, maybe up until about 350 million years ago. So instead of talking in terms of billions of years, like in the last three episodes, we're into the millions. The Paleozoic in Wisconsin is defined by water and the rocks that get deposited in water. 
These are sedimentary rocks. So it's generally, and you might notice that I use this word a lot in this episode, and that's because I'm often giving a pretty simple view of things, and there's a lot of uncertainty and exceptions to the rule when we're talking about the deep past. Anyways, generally, sedimentary rocks form when debris of some sort settles through water. And over a long, long period of time, that sediment gets buried, compressed, and cemented to become a rock. In the first time period of the Paleozoic, which is called the Cambrian, some of the notable rocks deposited in Wisconsin are sandstones. These are the sandstones that filled up the mid-continent rift basin and created an easy meal for the glaciers 500 million years later. There are also sandstones in the southwest part of the state, called the Tunnel City Formation, that forms many of the bluffs and mounds in the Driftless area, but we're going to get more into that in a future episode. The next time period after the Cambrian is the Ordovician, and sedimentary rocks from the Ordovician make up a lot of Wisconsin and Minnesota's Paleozoic bedrock. In fact, my college intramural volleyball team was called Ordovicious. It's a good name, so if any geologists out there want to steal it, go on ahead. There are sandstones in the Ordovician, and also limestones and claystones. Limestones are generally created from little microscopic calcium carbonate seashells that pile up on the ocean floor. Claystones form often out in the deep ocean where there's no input of sand from land, and where there's not much productivity on the surface to rain down those little shells. So they accumulate really, really slowly. After the Ordovician, the third subdivision of the Paleozoic is the... Silurian. This is Don McCulloch. Uh, I'm a retired uh, uh, senior paleontologist from the University of Illinois, but I've, uh, throughout my career, I've done most of my work in Wisconsin, Illinois, and surrounding area. And uh, right now, I'm a, a curator at the Weiss Earth Science Museum at UW Oshkosh uh, Fox uh, Cities campus in Menasha. So um, I do research, um, still do a lot of research in Wisconsin and Illinois primarily, and in Indiana, Iowa, and other places like that. And it's mostly focused on uh, uh, certainly the early Paleozoic, primarily the late Ordovician into the Middle Devonian. The Devonian time period is right after the Silurian. So by studying the end of the Ordovician into the middle of the Devonian time period, Don spent a lot of his time looking at rocks that were deposited in the Silurian. He's a paleontologist, which means he looked at these rocks through the view of what fossils are in them. And what can the rocks tell us about the environment that those animals lived in before they became fossils? And he's been doing this for most of his life, even since he was a kid. Yeah, I was born in Milwaukee, uh, right near Silurian Reef. It's just about two blocks away from Silurian Reef in downtown Milwaukee. And But I lived uh, most of my early years in Waukesha County. That's where I pretty much grew up. Well, when I was about four years old, I got interested in dinosaurs, and I was living in Waukesha County. Um, so I tried to start collecting fossils. There was a, a gravel in some of the driveways from a quarry near there and had Silurian fossils in, and I would collect them. And neighbors didn't appreciate that, apparently. Most of them would throw me out of the yard, but uh, I would do that. But there wasn't any dinosaurs in Wisconsin, of course, to be found. So eventually I, um, I got interested in Silurian trilobites because you could find Silurian trilobites in the area. Trilobites are the state fossil of Wisconsin. They kind of look like a horseshoe crab with a hard shell and an insect-like structure. There's a huge variety of species and life habits. Some swam around, eating plankton on the surface ocean. 
Some skittered across the ocean floor, hunting other creatures, scavenging, or filter-feeding off the sediment-water interface. It's thought that some even made it briefly onto land. Suffice to say, there's a lot going on with trilobites, and they're fascinating to study, even though they're extinct now. And that was my primary interest in research, but it kind of branched out from there because other than doing the systematics, it's mostly geology, trying to figure out environments and taphonomy and stuff like that. And so I've spent most of my life sidetracked into those other issues as opposed to solarian and trilobite the systematics. Fossil systematics is the science of organizing the diversity of life and figuring out the relationships between species, families, and phyla based on the form and position of fossils in the geologic record. But alongside that, you also need to understand the environments where these creatures were living and the process by which the creatures were fossilized so you know what was preserved and what might be invisible now, all these millions of years later. That means Don ended up working in a pretty interdisciplinary way to really get down into understanding not just the trilobites themselves, but also what the world was like while these little critters were swimming or crawling around. You know, I don't think in terms that I'm a paleontologist or a strategopher or a geologist. I'm all of those things. I guess that's the way to look at it. That means Don took a really holistic approach to understanding the Silurian time period. And when we're talking about the Silurian in the upper Midwest, there's one feature that stands out in how it still shapes the landscape. It created the Door County Peninsula, a historical limestone quarrying area, and a current vacation hotspot. But we're not quite there yet. First, what did Wisconsin look like back in the Paleozoic? Well, most of the continent during the Silurian was usually underwater. So you had shallow marine seas that covered almost everything. So sea level got really high, enough to flood pretty much the entire continent. Little did Kevin Costner know when he starred in the 1995 film Waterworld, which was at the time the most expensive movie ever made, that he was really just reenacting the Paleozoic in Wisconsin. Maybe the critics would have liked it better if there were more trilobites, but... I guess it wasn't a true water world back in the Paleozoic. There were island arc uh, uh, you know, situations in the east and the west coast. Um, the one on the west coast or east coast is the Appalachians. You know, the one on the west coast actually runs through places like uh, Idaho and Utah and Nevada. It's not the west coast that we have now. That's all stuff's been added on the continent. North America was smaller than it was today. On the west coast, the continent ended on the western edge of the Rocky Mountains though it's worth noting that the modern Rocky Mountains hadn't yet formed. These were sort of a proto-Rocky Mountain. Just imagine that Washington, Oregon, and California hadn't been tacked on yet over there. On the East Coast, the Appalachian Mountains, even by then an old mountain range, having formed something like 700 million years before the Silurian, the Appalachians were sticking up above sea level. Uh, but otherwise, it's pretty much underwater, but the water's shallow, so it comes and goes. And this is a key to understanding most of the Paleozoic rocks up here. Water levels rise and fall, depositing different types of rocks in different water depths. When we look back now, this leaves behind almost a layer cake-like structure of sediments. And this layer cake, it's a favorite analogy of geologists. At any given place, if you were to slice into the earth and look at it from the side, you'd probably see a bunch of flat-stacked parallel layers of sedimentary rocks, just like if you cut into a seven-layer chocolate cake. Maybe not quite as good to eat, though. And another interesting part of this story is that the ocean over the continent was really shallow, 
not like the deep abyssal plains you see over oceanic types of crust. So it didn't take much change in sea level to expose rock again, and the easiest way to raise and lower sea level? Melt and freeze ice. It makes intuitive sense if you think about it, but the more ice there is, the lower sea level will be, because the water gets locked away. The more the ice melts, the higher sea level will rise. That's why we worry about sea level rise as humans' carbon emissions cause the climate to warm. It turns out, though, that having lots of ice on the planet and melting it away every once in a while is nothing new. What's new is that we're causing it, and we could stop if we wanted to. Anyways, one of the things that I've been able to do is determine that there's uh, um, glacial events that, that highlight the Silurian uh, through Virgil Silurian. So we have uh, um, people recognize a big event at the end of Ordovician, um, and they talk about that as being a major extinction event. But in reality, uh, the Silurian continues on with that. So that you know gives them a question: Where do you actually define Ordovician Silurian boundary? Is this big thing at the end of the Ordovician? Maybe that should be Silurian. And other people are trying to extend the Ordovician into rocks that have been historically considered Silurian. But um, uh, you have these uh, these uh, these glaciostatic sea level changes, and they're matched by uh, extinction events. So. Um, if you just look at a trilobite, it's the only thing I'm really an expert on. Systematically, you see that you have virtually a complete extinction of all taxa during that time interval. Ice is melting in. So it's kind of like a situation we have now, which is if we're looking for a big extinction event, I mean, you know, this the ice age in those days is not caused by humans. We're apparently we're contributing now to uh, you know melting of the ice sheets now. But we're looking at a, a similar situation where melting ice, sea level is rising, and that's where the big marine extinction events occur. So we're talking about marine rocks because we don't know much of anything living on land, but that's, that's when this extinction event occurs. And this, this is a big value of working in the deep past. It might be able to give us insights into our future. When we change the climate to extremes humans have never lived through, we have to look at the examples in Earth's history where those extremes were reached so we can gain some clues as to what's coming. What differentiates now from the periods in the past, like the Paleozoic that we're discussing in this episode, is that we have some semblance of control over climate change. Those trilobites Don talked about a minute ago, they never stood a chance. We do. Hopefully we can take it and avoid causing the kind of catastrophes we see time and again in the deep past. This is one of the most important lessons to learn from geology, that we have choices and agency in determining geologic scale phenomena, and we ought not risk testing just how much agency we do have. But there's more about the Paleozoic that still matters today than just the lessons it can teach us about our climate system. A few minutes ago, I alluded to rocks from the Silurian time period being responsible for the Door County Peninsula, as well as a lot of the geography of eastern Wisconsin. For those of you not familiar with Wisconsin's geography, let's go back to the mitten analogy from the first few episodes. I know people in Michigan like to claim that their state has the mitten shape, but we're going to use it here, so sorry Michiganders. Wisconsin is kind of like a mitten if you look on it on a map. Our thumb is the Door County Peninsula. It's a long, spindly thumb, but a thumb nonetheless, sticking out into Lake Michigan. The geologic feature that underlies it, it's called the Niagara Escarpment, and it's not just important in Wisconsin. The escarpment, and we'll talk about what it is in a minute, 
but it starts down between Madison and Milwaukee, buried underground. Then... And that continues up through Door County. It goes through the Upper Peninsula in Michigan and then curves back down through Ontario. And then when you get to near Niagara Falls, it goes straight across to New York, uh, past Rochester, New York. That's almost 700 miles, a huge geologic feature. The fifth state geologist of Wisconsin, Increase Allen Lapham, and yes, you heard me right, his first name was Increase, and he's sometimes called Wisconsin's first scientist because he was the first Wisconsinite to publish a peer-reviewed scientific paper. Well, Increase Lapham in 1851 was the first person to recognize that the rocks on Door County were the same feature as one he grew up near in Palmyra, New York. So what is this Niagara Escarpment, and how did it form? Once we answer those questions, we can dive into why it still matters. Well, the Niagara Escarpment might have its origins as far back as uh, the Precambrian. So you had this mid-continental rift that forms about a billion years ago. And, you know, it curves around through Lake Superior and comes down through Michigan. Um, the Michigan Basin, which is a early Paleozoic feature, is a subsidence structure. It looks circular if you're mapping these Paleozoic rocks, but it's running right over the middle of this old rift. So there's probably some connection there. The rift is a linear thing and this is a circular thing. We talked about the Mid-Continent Rift back in the previous episode, and we focused on the part of it that starts in Lake Superior and then runs down along the Minnesota-Wisconsin border for a while and made copper in the Keweenaw Peninsula and on Isle Royale. But the rift has another arm to it. If you look at a map of the upper Midwest with Mid-Continent Rift rocks superimposed, they take up pretty much all of Lake Superior, and the part we talked about runs down south-southwest towards Oklahoma. But from the east end of Lake Superior, the rift turns south and cuts across Michigan towards Lake Erie. So Don's suspicion is that the Michigan Basin, which is like a bowl of sedimentary rocks centered on Michigan, has its origins in the rift. The rift here is generally a linear, straight feature, and the Michigan Basin is more circular. So it's not a one-to-one correlation, but it seems like there's certainly a relationship. And this bowl shape is keyed for the formation of the Niagara Escarpment, which I guess I've been a little bit cagey about what exactly it is, but to understand it, we needed that background on the Michigan Basin. To explain what the Niagara Escarpment is, let's start at High Cliff State Park on Lake Winnebago in eastern Wisconsin. By the time you get up to High Cliff State Park, you're starting to get some nice uh, cliff exposures. This is the far southwest corner of the Niagara Escarpment's 650-mile arc towards New York. And you've guessed it, it's named after the key feature that explains what the Niagara Escarpment is, high cliffs. Because of this Michigan basin, all the rocks tilt in towards the middle of the circle. So in Wisconsin, they're tipping to the east. It's like if you have your flat layer cake, like we talked about earlier. But you take that cake, and let's pretend that it's really large diameter, like three to four feet, and it's made up of lots and lots of thin layers. And instead of putting it on a table or a plate, you put it on a piece of cloth that's suspended in the air. The weight would cause the center of that cake to sag down, but the edges would be all tilted up like a bowl. So at any given point around the outside of this cake, it's sloping down towards the middle. So in Wisconsin, the rock layers tilt or dip towards the east, 
and are higher on the west. At High Cliff State Park on Lake Winnebago, the cliffs are on the east side of the lake, and that's the edge of this bowl or sagging cake. That's the Michigan Basin. And on the edge, it's forming cliffs. And it turns out those cliffs run all the way from eastern Wisconsin up the Door Peninsula, Wisconsin's spindly thumb, along the upper peninsula of Michigan, across southern Ontario, and then through Niagara Falls down into upstate New York. Plenty of geologic features that are 650 miles long or even longer, and they don't form cliffs and don't get big names like the Niagara Escarpment. So what makes it special? It's the particular rocks and the particular makeup of the individual layers of this Michigan basin. But the creation of that, that Michigan basin is what leads to the um, uh, Niagara Escarpment being formed. So you start out with, um, in Ordovician at least, you starting out with hard dolomite rocks being deposited throughout this area. Uh, there is some evidence occasionally of uh, some of these rocks uh, showing a, a basinal structure in Michigan, but other times it looks like there isn't necessarily a basin there. But you start with these hard rocks, they're overlain by shales, and that's at the end of the Vordivision. And then when the Slurian seas come back in, it's overlaid by hard dolomites again. And then above that is soft, uh, well, there's some middle Devonian uh, dolomites, but above that is some uh, soft shales. So all of that, had, all those rocks have been tilted towards Michigan slightly. And uh, so that gives it a, a step erosional edge, so to speak. And that's what the, the escarpment is. So you have hard rocks, soft rocks, hard rocks, soft rocks. And the Niagara escarpment is the one that's represented by the Silurian hard rocks overlying the, the softer Ordovician rocks. Dolomite is like a limestone, but it has more magnesium in it than limestone does. Because of that magnesium, dolomite is really resistant to erosion. Limestone reacts with weak acids, so it weathers and falls apart fairly easily. Dolomite has some protection from that chemical weathering, and that means it's really good at forming cliffs. But that's only half the story Don just told us. Because if all the rocks were hard and resistant to erosion, we still wouldn't have cliffs. We need the contrast of hard and soft rocks like shales or claystones against the dolomites to have the differential erosion to form cliffs. How it works is the clays underneath the dolomite erode out, and then unsupported blocks of the dolomite fall down, leaving a sheer cliff behind. So we started in High Cliff State Park on Lake Winnebago in eastern Wisconsin. And then when you get to Door County, Door County is essentially a, a big exposure of the escarpment itself. Now the escarpment technically is only the edge of the slurring, the eroded edge of these rocks, or division a little bit at the bottom, mostly covered by talus, but the slurring above. And, uh, um, and then it's pretty well exposed through the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and down through Ontario, and all the way over to Rochester, New York. Uh, it's not continuous. Uh, there's gaps eroded through it and, and things like that. Um, but it's a, it's a very prominent feature once you get up in at least northeastern Wisconsin. De definitely uh, characterizes the landscape uh, quite a bit. It, um, um, it's a nice natural area. Um, uh, for example, uh, a lot of it hasn't been logged, the exact cliff face itself. So you get some of the oldest trees and certainly in central part of North America are found 
along this cliff face. There's a, a cedar in Wisconsin, it's supposed to be a, a thousand years old. There's some in, I think, Ontario that are even much older than that. So, um, and you get relic populations of sort of cold living animals and plants uh, that live there, snails and stuff like that, that um, they were probably widespread at one stage, but as the ice retreated and it was melted, these things were left behind and they commonly sit along this escarpment, particularly if the escarpment is facing away from the sun, they find a nice habitat to live in. And that continues all the way around. So if you look at um, the Great Lakes, uh, the northern part of Lake Michigan, northern part of Lake Huron, and northern part of Lake Ontario are all defined pretty much by the the trace of the Niagara Escarpment. Uh, Lake, Air Interior, uh, Lake Erie isn't. Um, it's too far away from the escarpment area. And then Lake Superior has nothing to do with it. But we have parts of three Great Lakes that are pretty much defined by the Niagara Escarpment. And this brings us back around to why the Niagara Escarpment and the Paleozoic time period in general still matters. First, the escarpment shapes the landscape of Wisconsin beyond just the cliffs and the high spots of Door County and the unique biota that thrive on those shady slopes. It also interacted with the glaciers, which came hundreds of millions of years later, and this created many of the distinctive features of eastern Wisconsin, even beyond the escarpment itself. Unlike in Lake Superior, where the glaciers flowed from the northwest to the east-southeast because of that mid-continent rift, here the glaciers were flowing due south, scraping out what is now Lake Michigan. Until, that is, the invading ice sheet met a dolomitic bedrock high sticking out into the Great Lakes Basin. The escarpment divides uh, the big lobe that was coming down into the Lake Michigan lobe, which is of course to the east, and that's a much bigger lobe, but it splits off the, the Green Bay lobe. So those things are divided by the escarpment, and it's probably that ice was building up at, at lower elevations of say at some stage. They eventually overflowed uh, uh, you know, the top of the escarpment, but they're moving south and building up and, and so it's dividing it too. So that structure does, uh, the escarpment does characterize pretty much what Eastern Wisconsin looked like, uh, particularly the, the Door Peninsula and stuff like that. Uh, it's all there because of, uh, of uh, this ice flowing through there uh, around this hard rock feature. So if it wasn't for the escarpment, we'd have no Green Bay Packers, for example, because there would be no Green Bay. <laughs> yeah. um, so that impacts our lives now in ways we don't think about. You heard that right. Without this escarpment, this dolomitic edge to the bowl of the Michigan Basin, there'd be no spindly thumb of Wisconsin jutting out into Lake Michigan. And instead of Green Bay, there'd just be a straight, uninterrupted coastline without a deeply protected harbor where Aaron Rodgers can throw his Hail Marys. And there's another feature here that's due to the Niagara Escarpment bedrock high interacting with those intruding glaciers. We're going to talk about this far more in a future episode, but as a teaser. Yeah, so, so yeah, so that goes south and, the, and these lobes start running into each other. I mean, they're already divided to the north in the two lobes, but they go south. And I think the rock surface might be dipping in that direction to some extent. So these ice sheets start hitting against each other. And uh, when they melt, it's just a big pile of debris that both of them were building up uh, 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 in that area that's left behind. The Green Bay lobe doesn't go all the way through Wisconsin. Lake Michigan, of course, goes all the way down in Indiana. So that one is ending there and it's melting and all the stuff is piling up. So the kettle marine and all that is there again because of the escarpment. So the landscape of eastern Wisconsin, from the home of Lambeau Field and Green Bay to the Door Peninsula, 
to the natural preserves of the Kettle Moraine are all here because of this Niagara escarpment and the barrier it posed to that glacier's path. But the landscape features aren't the only reason the Niagara escarpment is important to us now. The Dolomite itself plays an important role in our human history of Wisconsin. Primarily uh, um, was responsible for having a nice building material available for pioneer settlers. So you can make stuff out of wood, you know, and there's lots of trees around. You can make it out of bricks. And the only alternative beyond that is stone. So um, when people came to this area, probably people are buying land, not realizing there's a big cliff in the middle of their property, which probably didn't make them happy initially. But uh, um, it's a good stone material, so you can make you can building stone out of it. And then the other thing is there's been a lot of lime produced uh, along the escarpment. And lime was the cementing material of the uh, before 1900 worldwide, you know, you didn't have cement, it wasn't really available. So you'd use mortar, you know, made out of lime. So that was a big industry and there's still uh, at least one lime operation in Wisconsin that's making lime out of the escarpment. Um, so that became, you know, if your farmer had a nice outcrop of that, you might be able to convert that into a nice, nice business. But it was uh, very important because in most of the 19th century, transportation wasn't all that hot. So, you know, if you had quarries near you or, you know, places you could burn lime or something like that, that was a, a big benefit to the region. The location of the escarpment on the Door Peninsula was also a convenient one for the nascent cities of Chicago and Milwaukee. Like Don just said, the transportation system in the early 19th century was not all that great for transporting heavy things over long distances but there was one transportation method that worked pretty well. That's carrying materials by boat. So the escarpment's position just on the shore of Lake Michigan meant that the good building material of its dolomite could be relatively easily transported to other markets on the lake. And it wasn't just barns and banks that they used this stone to build. In the 1830s, uh, there was a period where the government decided they're going to have in, what they called internal improvements, like building harbors and stuff like that. And so they started to build harbors in Michigan and Indiana and down around Chicago. Uh, so they needed big blocks of stone, you know, to make, you know, make these harbors. And the easiest place to get it was in Door County because you had these big outcrops uh, standing up. Otherwise, you know, you'd have, you couldn't go inland in those days, no roads, no railroads, no nothing. So it had to be along the waterway. And you could go there and pick up rocks as big as a person could pick up. You could throw them in a, a barge and hold them down there. So there's, uh, you can see old ads in newspapers in the 1830s and ask people to bid on this, you know, the, producing a stone. But they told you you had to go up to government land in Door County to, to pick it up. In fact, under one proposed plan, the dolomite from the escarpment could have radically changed the layout of the whole town of Chicago. It, uh, at one stage, it was, well, in the 1820s, it was proposed to actually um, make an island off the shore at, at Chicago because there's a little river there. And it sands up, you know, and people knew that then that it'd be hard to keep that open. So a proposal was uh, to make an island offshore of this rock from Door County, and then they would connect it to the shore. And, and that's where all the commerce is supposed to be. Now, that never quite happened that way, but that was, uh, that was a proposal. But let's come back to Wisconsin and back to the most notable feature of Wisconsin that we can ascribe to this escarpment. That's Door County itself, the spindly thumb of a peninsula that sticks out into Lake Michigan. Today, it's a big destination as a weekend getaway for people from all over Wisconsin and the surrounding region. It doesn't just shelter the bay that's home to the Packers. It's a good place to visit on its own right. Maybe after a game, you can take a trip up there. And visiting the Tor Peninsula, it's nothing new. 
Yes, uh, geotourism started in the late 1800s in Door County and actually around Lake Winnebago too. So we had people going like from Oshkosh, they'd take boats across Lake Winnebago and climb up the cliff. And um, there was a little road there, but they, they had to walk. I see pictures of ladies dressed all these new fancy dresses, hiking up the hill, it's a big hill. And then they had some recreation area up at the top and uh, stuff like that, but it's a nice view. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people did that. And so, yeah, people came to Door County because of the geology and specifically because of the escarpment. Although I think nowadays, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be so sure that everybody knew that's why they were going to Door County, but that's, that's how it all started. So geotourism, you know, which is a recent term, but that's been in effect for, you know, over a hundred years and, and along the escarpment in the Northern part of the state. Well, even in Pewaukee, there's a place where I know that people used to go, um, the, you know, around 1900 as a, as a, Sunday park kind of place. So um, part of the escarpment. So yeah, it's been around a long time. So if you're one of the many people who takes trips up to Door County, give thanks to the Niagara Escarpment next time you visit. It's all there. Door County is there because of the escarpment. It's the one, it's pretty much a piece of bare rock sticking up in the Lake Michigan. There's very little glacial debris on the top. It's all slurring rocks related. Uh, and the escarpment is the big showy place. And thanks to this escarpment and its positions surrounded by Lake Michigan, there's a pretty unique climate there. First, like Don talked about earlier, the cliffs face north and northwest, which means they don't get much sun and they shade the ground below. Second, the lake, all that water surrounding the peninsula, moderates the temperature, keeping it a little bit cooler in the summer and a little bit warmer in the winter. One consequence of that is the famous Door County cherries. Another new industry is also starting to pop up there. There's a lot of uh, vineyards uh, that are um, have been developed in the last 10 or more years, probably 20 years now, uh, because of the climatic difference near the escarpment. It's a cooler kind of place. And so there's a lot of that going on. There's like 20 or 30 of them beginning down around uh, Lake Winnebago, I think, uh, certainly not too much farther north, and then going all the way up through Door County. And they're there because of the climatic differences related to the escarpment. So the Niagara Escarpment has been a feature of the landscape that attracted and still attracts people for almost 200 years now when we're talking about history in terms of the Euro-American settlers in the region. That history extends back to about 12,000 years ago, though, when we consider the indigenous people in the area, which we must. There's evidence of continuous habitation of the peninsula for about 10,000 years, and of permanent settlements going back 2,000 years. So even over a 1,000 years before Europeans even had a dreamed of heading west across the Atlantic Ocean, the Door Peninsula was a home to people. At the time of the European arrival, it was home to the Potawatomi tribe, but the Ho-Chunk, Ojibwe, Sauk, Menominee, and Ottawa were also tied to the peninsula. Another cool aspect of the story is how long scientists have been interested in these rocks, especially the reef rocks around Milwaukee and eastern Wisconsin. And not just scientists, but the community and interested citizens got in on the action. You know, when the reefs were discovered here, uh, you know, back in the late 1850s, um, it was an interesting sort of cooperation between um, um, they're, they're, I might call them amateur naturalists or gentleman naturalists is what we call them, but they're, you know, people like Increase Al Lapham, the famous Wisconsin scientist. He was the guy who was collecting fossils first 
and these reefs around Milwaukee and sent them to this uh, James Hall in New York. So there was this cooperation between, you know, these people because there weren't a lot of professional scientists scattered around and you had to depend on these people that actually lived in places to, you know, find the fossils or find the birds or whatever, you know, whatever you're trying to uh, get information on. And so, um, you know, that was started and, and it uh, became a very, um, like I said, it was a text, Wisconsin reefs were a textbook example, um, very well known worldwide. They were only known though because of coring. So natural outcrops in the escarpment are one thing, but these, like these reefs are generally only been exposed significantly in, in operating quarries, many of which are long gone now there. You, you can't even see the places anymore. We have uh, one in Wauwatosa, which is being made into a, a, a essentially a science park. Uh, it is this first one that was discovered and what's left of it has been fenced off now and it's gonna be a, a park, but it's not open now uh, to the public. Um, so the, you know, these ways science operated in the past are, are different ways science operates now, I guess that's the, the main way to look at it. But, um, people came up pretty good ideas with what they had to work with. And... That's part of what makes this area so special. People have flocked here for generations and it's inspired this scientific inquiry from those gentlemen naturalists to kids exploring around the Door Peninsula today. Finding a fossil is a cool thing. And Don's not the only one who's had that experience as a gateway into the geosciences. But beyond that, there are lessons we can learn from these ancient periods. Like the extinction events tied to climatic change. Like the way change of sea level, of the depositional environment, of the evolution of the taxa. The way that change is a constant. That even when there aren't dramatic tectonic collisions or rifts, the planet is still dynamic and interconnected through space and time. The Mid-Continent Rift set the stage for the Niagara Escarpment to form over half a billion years later. And the Niagara Escarpment set the stage for the glaciers to make Kettle Moraine and leave behind the Door Peninsula. Then even later, we quarried that rock and came in droves for geotourism. Through this chain, we are connected back to the earliest bits of Earth history, even though they occurred millions or even billions of years before the first biped mammal decided to start trying to walk upright. Thanks to Don McCulloch for the great interview. I really appreciate his knowledge, both of the geology, but also the history of the region. Remember to rate or review the podcast, hit subscribe, and I'd also encourage you to tell a friend or family member about the show, if you think they might like it. If you want to support us directly, and help us do things like license music, keep recording equipment in good shape, and pay the hosting fees to publish the podcast, please check out uofpod.org, where there's a link to support the show on Patreon. Thanks to those of you that already have. Thanks also to the American Geophysical Union, Jeremy Randolph Flagg, and Katie Demetz. The music you heard was Arizona Moon by the Blue Dot Sessions. And thank you all for listening. Come back in two weeks for a great episode where we explore some of the intricacies of the Paleozoic down in the southwestern part of the state. We're going to be talking about caves and lead mining.